book of Numbers, which you know now, really means in the wilderness, the Midbar. Ancient Israel is in the process of journeying from bondage uh, and uh, on their way to their land of promise. And Almighty God wants to help them to get there in the most efficient way. And so he gives them a whole book of instruction on how to do it. And one of the subjects uh, he speaks to them now early in their wilderness wanderings is one that uh, I suppose keeps some people from coming to church uh, because they don't understand, uh, I think, what's at the heart of the issue of giving. And so that's what the topic is tonight. And I only bring it up not for any lack or deficiency of a significant kind on the part of the members of this church. Uh, our pastor has given us glorious reports of how God has blessed us in the month of December and confirmed uh, both his leadership of the church and the direction we're going in. And so these are marvelous, marvelous days. But I bring up the subject because we have no option. That's the text in Numbers chapter 7 tonight. So let me invite you, if you haven't found your way there yet, Numbers chapter 7. While you're turning there, uh, let me tell you that this is the second longest chapter in the entire Bible. And this being the case, uh, get comfortable. You don't have anything to do tonight, do you? Because this is a long, no, not that comfortable. Numbers chapter 7, second longest chapter. Would you like to guess what the longest chapter in the Bible? That is correct. Psalm 119. This is the second longest. Trust me, I'll extract from it, I think, the major theme so that there'll be no need really to, to read each verse. But let's begin with verse 1. Now, on the day that Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, he anointed it and consecrated it with all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils. He anointed them and consecrated them also. And then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their father's households, made an offering. They were the leaders of the tribes. They were the ones who were over the numbered men. And when they brought their Offering before the Lord, six, this was the offering, six covered carts and twelve oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders, twelve leaders for twelve tribes, you see, and an ox for each one, twelve oxen, twelve leaders representing twelve tribes. Then they presented them this offering, the covered wagons and the oxen, they presented this offering before the tabernacle. And then uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, accept these things from them. Those are magnificent words, welcomed, glorious words. If ever God were to choose to reject your offering and mine, we'd be in a heap of trouble. And so in this case, he told Moses Representative of the people accept the offering of the leaders on behalf of all of the people that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and you shall give them to the Levites 
to each man according to his service. You will recall this tribe was set apart for tabernacle ministrations. They were to serve in the tab. They were to take it down. They were to set it up. Uh, they were to sustain its holiness and all the rest. And so Moses, verse 6, took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. And here's how he did it. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon. Aaron had uh, about three sons. And here's the first. The sons of Gershon, according to their service. And he gave four carts and eight oxen to the sons of Merari, according to their service, under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. So this is interesting. Uh, the sons of Merari received more carts and oxen, you notice, than the sons of Gershon. Do you, do you see that in the text? That's how you have to read, you know, kind of notice things like that. And so, so some folks got more than other folks did. Why? Simple. They needed it. You, you see, the uh, sons of Merari were tasked with the responsibility of uh, transporting the heaviest parts of the tabernacle, wood beams and heavy objects and all the rest. And so uh, their ministry, if you will, needed to be funded to a greater extent than did the ministry of the others. There cannot be a competition uh, it was not a, a, a turf war. Uh, the giving of God's people had to be distributed according to the priority consideration placed upon each ministry. So it wasn't a democracy, you know, and why did he get this and I got that? No, 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 no. The giving was to be in accordance and in proportion with the responsibility uh, commensurate with the ministry. And so that's why... Things were divided up somewhat differently over here. Now, verse 9, but he, Moses, did not give any, no carts, no oxen, to the sons of Kohath. Uh, why? Well, because theirs was the surface of the holy objects which they carried on the shoulder. So the Kohathites were given this responsibility. They were not to carry the bulk items, the heavy items. They were to carry the most sacred items which were part and parcel of the furnishings of the tabernacle. There was a holy place and a holy of holies in the tabernacle. And there was limited access there. Well, well, this branch of the Levites were tasked which, with giving honorable and respectable care to these most holy objects. And so they weren't fit for transport by oxen and wooden courts. No, the Kohathites uh, were given the privilege and responsibility of carrying these most holy objects on their very shoulders, and therefore they didn't need any of the offering. No carts, you see, and no oxen. And so now we find out about still yet a second category of offering, beginning in verse 10, brought by uh, the leaders again on behalf of all of the people. So verse 10, the leaders offered the dedication offering a little different offering than they just did, a dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed. And so the leaders offered their offering before the altar. And the Lord said to Moses, let them present their offering, one leader each day. And so if it was one leader for each day, this presentation of dedication offerings would last how long? Yeah, 
12 days. That's exactly how it was. It was to be stretched out for a lot of reasons. Uh, from a logistical point of view, if each leader of each of the tribes were to present uh, their offerings at the same time, you'll see them. It, it simply would have been way too crowded. You'll see the extent of the offerings they gave. So, so there's a logistical reason, but there's more to it than that. This whole procedure of making a dedication offering to God was to be do- done with uh, uh, care and uh, plan and uh, to be drawn out sufficiently so that everyone, not just in the camp, but even onlookers who weren't even part of the covenant yet, would take note of what the people of God were doing. And so each day an offering was to be brought by the leader of each tribe. So verse 12, the one who presented his offering on the first day was this fellow, Nashon, the son of Aminadab of the tribe of Judah. So what you're going to see now in the rest of the text is that uh, the leaders presented their offering in the very order in which their tribes were positioned in previous chapters around the tabernacle, starting from the east and working its way around. So you'll find if you back up where we once were several weeks ago, Judah went first because Judah was positioned around the tabernacle first. And so let me just show you the formula or the uh, standard procedure by which this happens. So the name of the leader is given. Uh, the tribe he represents is given. And now beginning in verse 13, you get an idea of the offering he, on behalf of his people, brought. His offering was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels. See, they weighed uh, the value of things and currency. They didn't have paper currency in those days. So this silver object weighed 130 shekels. And in addition, they gave one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering. And then one gold pan of Ten shekels full of incense. And then one bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering. And then one male goat for a sin offering. And for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. Uh, This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Aminadab. And this standard order of things continues uh, through each of the 12 tribes. The only difference is the name of the leader of the tribe and the tribe. And so if you take a gander at verse 18, you see on the second day, and now you have the name of a second leader and a second tribe, but exactly the same things are offered in dedication to God at the tabernacle. And you can work all the way through Now here I'm going to save you some time. All the way through verse 83. And you will see uh, the enumeration with specificity of each named leader, each tribe he represented, and each specific 
uh, item and their weight which he offered. And uh, God painstakingly, for reasons I'd like to suggest in a minute, uh, recorded this for us in detailed fashion down to this very day. So now, beginning in verse 84, what we have is a summation of the totality of the offerings which were brought to God over these 12 days by these 12 tribal leaders who represented each of their tribes. And so, uh, take a look at verse 84 with me. This was the dedication offering for the altar from the leaders of Israel when it was anointed. Twelve silver dishes, twelve silver bowls, twelve gold pans, each silver dish weighing 130 shekels and each bowl 70. All the silver of the utensils was 2,400 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The twelve gold pans full of incense weighing Ten shekels apiece, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. All the gold of the pans, 120 shekels. All the oxen for the burnt offering, 12 bulls. All the rams, 12. The male lambs, one year old with their grain offering, 12. And the male goats for a sin offering, 12. And all the oxen for the sacrifices of peace offerings, 24 bulls. All the rams, 60. The male goats, 60. The male lambs, one year old, 60. This was the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. And now in closing in this chapter, you have one final verse with an interesting note in verse 89. Now when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, so he spoke to him. There is the second longest chapter in the Bible. Which leads to this question. What in the world are we to make of this text? And that, my friends, is not the best question. The best question is, what can this text make of us? We don't sit in judgment of its relevance. We let it transform us. What can this extensive chapter make of us? I think if you get the heart of it, the sense of it, it can make us givers. No, not just givers. Givers who give for the right reason. So, Do you know what motivated all this orchestrated giving described painstakingly in this chapter? It was one thing. It was gratitude. Overwhelming, incomprehensible, unbounded gratitude. What motivated this giving was not the mandate of Almighty God. When Moses was called up previous to this on Mount Sinai with all his destructions for the people, God said nothing to him about the oxen and about the covered wagons and about all of this. I'm telling you, all of this giving was a spontaneous emanation of a grateful heart. This is potentially transforming. If you know God, the way these covenant people knew God, the same ought to be true of you. 
They weren't waiting for a law and a commandment and a mandate from Almighty God. In fact, if he commanded them not to give and thus express their gratitude, I think they would have exploded. They had to say thank you in some fashion. And that's what this is all about. And so their giving flowed out of grateful hearts. In fact, it was a celebration. Their giving was not obligatory. It wasn't a have to. It was a, I must. I must. In fact, it was a celebration. Their giving was an act of worship. It was a celebration of their experience of the unbridled grace of Almighty God. (laughs) This wasn't a religious experience. This was an emanation of their relationship with an otherwise unapproachably holy God who embraced them like they had never been embraced before. God saved them out of bondage. God then gave them his law to cramp their style. No! In giving them the law, he in so many words said, I care how you live. I'm not a disinterested observer of your life. I'm involved. I'm the giver of life. Live this way. He freed them. He gave them law. He gave them future hope. He said, I will give you a place and a land of promise. And he established his presence amongst them. Almighty, transcendent deity, the great beyond, who has no beginning nor end, the unbounded one who pierces the space-time dimension, who cannot be comprehended by even the greatest human finite mind, said, call me Emmanuel, God in your midst, for I will establish my presence amongst These previously enslaved people in the midst of a multitude of false gods who let left them spiritually hungry and impoverished suddenly were filled to overflow by the very presence of the bread of life. I don't think even God would have the capacity to put a limit on their giving. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Please accept this, Lord. I'm dedicated to you. It's tribute, almighty God, great God, my God, master, most high God. Please accept this. Oh, God, it's a small token. It's a sacrificial gift, and it's small in comparison to the gifts with which you have embraced me. Don't you see? Don't, don't. So they were not waiting for a commandment to give. Oh, no. The impetus for giving was relationship with a covenant God who loved them first, who took the first step, who established a connection they didn't deserve with them. They had to express their appreciation, and so they gave. They needed a concrete, physical means of expressing their gratitude to God. It wasn't mandated. Mandated, compulsory giving is not what God is after. That's what cruel tyrants are after. What God is after is a voluntary expression of your love and celebration of your appreciation for him. 
in your giving. By which you express your gratitude. Their giving was not provoked, provoked by fear of God. It was provoked by God's blessing, which they knew they did not deserve. What motivates you? If you are motivated, my fellow Christians, if you are motivated by anything but this, which I'm about to tell you, you are incorrectly motivated. You have to be motivated by the love of God for you. Nothing else is acceptable. For, we read in the New Covenant, the love of Christ constrains us. If you're still motivated by the fear of God, I don't think you've been thoroughly good newsed. You see? The only proper motivation, not for religious people, good night, for relationship people, is the experience of the unconditional, undeserved, unending, unbridled love of Almighty God for you. If that motivates you to give, you are properly motivated. They didn't give mechanically, thoughtlessly, religiously, legalistically. They gave out of thankful hearts, overflowing with gratitude for what God had done, is doing, and will do for them. They knew something about a very common practice in the ancient Middle East, uh, it was quite common for powerful princes in ancient times to sit on their thrones on certain special days uh, as their subjects from around the territory would come from all parts of the kingdom so as to appear before this powerful prince for the purpose of each presenting to him gifts of tribute. And in the offering of these gifts to great personages of old, each gift was presented slowly, painstakingly, individually, somewhat theatrically, so that all the onlookers could be the audience seeing the valuation of tribute, which was in a planned Way, not an impulsive way, being brought to this great and powerful dignitary. It was a great display of submission and yieldedness and respect and honor being given to this powerful one who sat on the throne. Well, the ancient Israelites grew up in that kind of culture. They understood the practice that was quite standard in that day. And Numbers chapter 7 tells us that they were doing the same thing, but to an altogether different dignitary. They were showing their tribute to the one and only Most High God. They were bringing their gifts just as painstakingly, just as individually and specifically, just as voluntarily and freely, just as dramatically and strikingly, to their God in his palace, the tabernacle in the wilderness. And so the princes of Israel as representatives of all of the subjects of the great king 
would in turn each day present their tribute, their tributary offerings and gifts to their king. And with the same detail and attention as did the others who presented their gifts to those who were not the king of kings. They're bringing in this chapter their tribute to Almighty God. This is the kind of thing that saved subjects of the great Redeemer King, who is Jesus Christ, do. This is the kind of tribute that saved subjects of the Almighty Redeemer King do. If this is something you're not doing, it's time to think about whether you're a subject of the great and almighty Redeemer King. Because it's something that is a mark of you being subject to him, embraced by him. It's a spontaneous, free will, non-mandated, voluntary expression of your respect and honor and gratitude to almighty God. Some measure of education may be required, no question. But not that much motivation. The motivation should be there if in fact you're a recipient of the redemption of the almighty Redeemer King. Because then you too are on the verge of exploding with a need to express your gratitude for what he has done, is doing, and will do for you. If it has to be giving, if it has to be coerced, I would encourage you to ask the question, do I know, do I really know this great Redeemer King? Because I don't seem to be doing the themes, the things one of his subjects would spontaneously be doing. Check yourself out. What's on your heart? What moves you? Hoarding or expressing thanksgiving to Almighty God? What is it? What is it? Now, I have to tell you something. This orchestrated, planned giving, which we're reading about in number seven, uh, not only brought pleasure and delight to the king. Remember, he said, accept it from them, Moses. Accept it. Let them bring it. It not only brought pleasure and delight to the king, it, it did something else. It brought harmony to all of the subjects of the king. They were united in their celebratory worship of the king. And you say, so, 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 but did you come up with this? This is another reason for giving. No, the, the king lacks for nothing. That is true. He's the all-sufficient one. One of the reasons why the subjects together give is that that way the subjects can be together. This is how the subjects of the king are united. If half of the subjects are giving and half are not, we have disunity. You know what we have in the modern day church? Disunity. We're not all, we're not all giving tribute to the king. It has nothing to do with buildings and budgets. Don't reduce giving to crass, mundane buildings and budgets. (laughs) This is an outpouring of gratitude. On the part of one who was in bondage to a cruel taskmaster and had nothing to do but cry out 
to the mercy of Almighty God. And that's all it took. He hears your cry. He delivers you. And he says, now follow me through the wilderness on your way to promise. And while you're there, I'll transform you, prune you, a baggage you don't need to bring, be bringing with you. So, 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 so this not only brought delight to the king, it brought unity to all of the king's subjects. And so you see, every leader in this text, as representative of every tribe, participated, every single one. And so that's why you have 80 plus verses. You say, oh my goodness, I'm busy. I have no time. What's in this for? You know, we joke about these long texts with names you can't pronounce and everything. There's no fat in the Bible. Everything is necessary. There's no fluff. God put it there for our instruction. Everyone participated. Not one tribe was excluded. Some statistical surveys indicate that church members in churches today do not show 100 participation in, 100% participation in giving. Far less, sometimes less than half give. Here we got his teaching. Us in number seven. No, no, no. Everyone who's the subject of the king participates in giving is an act of worship. And so everyone did it here. And so in doing, they united in total tribal support for a few things. One, for the worship center. In their case, the tabernacle. Two, for the worship leadership. In their case, priests and Levites. Three, for the worship process. In their case, sacrifices of bulls and goats. And then also, for the God who is to be worshipped. Their Redeemer. And notice this. They gave in two categories. They gave what was immediate and used up. And then they gave that which would have a more permanent value in the tabernacle procedures. And so some gifts were for the moment like fine flour and incense and animals to be sacrificed. But other gifts were given to sustain uh, the tabernacle for a long term in its forward movement through the through the wilderness. We too are moved wonderfully sometimes to give to particular uh, causes uh, that are brought to our attention. Sometimes you come and you're seated next to someone and during the time of sharing and fellowship you become aware of that person's need and something moves you. You're, it's wonderful to be so moved. Something moves you. To, you. You reach into your pocket and you don't have much if all you have is three dollars left. Something moves you to give those three dollars to that person sitting next to you. That is not to be discouraged. That is a wonderful uh, thing, but that's not all there is in giving to the immediate, to to what strikes you on the at the spur of the moment, to 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 what conjures up your your heartfelt emotion. That's good. That's good. But what, 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 what about the infrastructure of the tabernacle? <laughs> so today the studies are showing us that this generation, it's not that they're not givers, they are. 
They just don't give in a planned and regular way. They give as they're moved. They're generous. If they're the one with the last three dollars, they'll give it to a hungry friend. This is a marvelous thing to behold. But I'm afraid this generation of givers, while doing that, which is so good, uh, they're minimizing the importance of sustaining the long-term infrastructure of the tabernacle in its forward movement through the wilderness and in the world. It is just as sacred to give to the infrastructure of your local church building as it is to reach in your pocket with your last dollar and give it to a needy other who is sitting next to you. I thank God for this facility which we have in which to edify one another and worship Almighty God. But the light bill has to be paid for. And I know it isn't as emotionally stimulating (laughs) to pay the utility bill as it might be uh, to pay for somebody's meal so that their empty stomach can be filled. It's not an either-or, it's a both and I'm a little concerned because the studies indicate that the pattern of giving in the younger generation today is of the more spontaneous, as I feel moved, one time, as I'm stirred up emotionally, kind of giving. But the offering of these people was that kind, that which was expendable, and that which was also indispensable for the perpetuation of the infrastructure of the tabernacle, which served as a symbol of the very physical presence and kind intentions of the otherwise unseen God. It has to be underwritten by the subjects of of the king. And so both kind of giving is required. The loving That's what they were, generous gifts given by the totality of the subjects of the king in this chapter undoubtedly gave him pleasure. I think this is the case because he took note of it. Look at all the space uh, devoted to recording the giving. It's tallied, it's totaled, it's recorded in God's book, the book of Numbers. Down to this very day. It was special to God. But I don't think it was special to God because of the amount given. I think it was special to God because of the ones who gave it. They were his new kids. They were his new kids. Are you a parent or a grandparent? It means something to you, doesn't it? When your grandchild presents you with something. It could be the very thing that has little or no monetary value. But it's priceless to you. It isn't the, 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 the valuation of the gift. It's the valuation of the giver. How could it be that a child of the king would not yearn to bring gifts to the king? Could it be that maybe one is not a child of the king? You gotta check yourself out here, you see. And God's pleasure with the, with the offering, uh, I think 
was implied in his final response in this chapter to Moses, who represented all of the people. Uh, can you take a gander with me just as we close to verse 89? 89, again. After all of the giving took place in different categories and uh, with such heartfelt interest in pleasing the king, we read this. Now when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with him. To speak with the Redeemer King. He, Moses, heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two angels, cherubim. So he, the great Redeemer King, spoke to him. God manifested his presence here. He spoke. He did not turn his back. He did not turn away. He spoke. Almighty God, you couldn't reach him, nor could I. Spoke to his subjects, because his subjects created an atmosphere fit for the habitation of the king. An atmosphere of praise, celebration, and tribute. And the king spoke. He inhabits the praises of his people, you see. And, and notice the place from which he spoke. It was a place of mercy and not of condemnation. God will speak. Everyone will hear his voice. We heard the State of the Union address last night. Most of us, many around the world, as our president spoke. He had the ear of many in the world. It's nothing in comparison to what it will be like when the great Redeemer King returns and speaks. He will have even our president's Undivided attention in that day. And some will tremble. And cower in fear. But not the subjects of the king. Who are already practicing what it's like to bring their tribute to the king. They're already practicing that habit which will be customarily theirs on into eternity, gathered around the throne, worshiping the king. Now, they won't cower in fear at the king's voice because he will speak to his subjects from a place of mercy. The mercy seat. Why? There is no condemnation for the subjects of the king, for the son of the king has already been condemned on our behalf. Wow. And he spoke from between two cherubim, a special category of angelic host. This is so significant because there was a time earlier on in biblical history. The people knew about it then when angels of God in the same category blocked the people's access to the best of what God had to offer. It took place in the beginning 
It is recorded in the book of beginnings, Genesis. First man sinned against Almighty God. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, we read, So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim. See, here they are again. The cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. No access to the tree of life. An obstacle between sinful man and what holy God had to offer. The best of what he had to offer could not be received because the cherubim stood between naked sinful man and an unapproachably holy God. And the subjects of the king who brought him tribute because he first lovingly established a covenant with them. Now they have access. Now the cherubim are not in the way. They're framing your entree into a personal conversation with Almighty God. There's no sword. There's outstretched arms that say, come near to the throne of grace. And receive grace and mercy in time of need. Now we have access to life. Now we are God's subjects. We have his guidance in our wilderness journey. We have the experience of his presence, not in a tent-like movable object called the tabernacle, but in our very persons, which he calls the temples. Of his Holy Spirit. Now we have. His promise. Of future hope. Now he says. The best is yet to come. And follow me. Into your place of promise. And we. If we're truly subjects of the king. We voluntarily. Voluntarily. It's not a mandate. We freely express. Our appreciation. In bringing our tribute to the king. And we support immediate, moving, striking needs. And we support the long-term interests of the infrastructure of the church of Jesus Christ. And all of its furnishings just, just as well. So what can we make of this chapter? No. That's what critics of the Bible ask. Subjects of the Bible say, oh God, what can this chapter make of me? It could make us joyous, united, grateful givers. Whose giving is an act of worship in response to the grace of an almighty God whose grace is far greater than all our sin. Let this chapter do that to you and thus prove you are a subject of the king. And we bow before you, king of kings, great redeemer king, before whom we bring 
tribute in the form of our lives, our material resources, our time, our talents, all a dedicatory offering to you, great Redeemer King, for having embraced us as your subjects, for forming us into a kingdom of believer priests, for leading us through our wilderness journey, for sure, into our final place of rest, seated around the throne, in our land of promise, heaven forever, offering praise, bringing tribute to you, our great Redeemer King. Thank you for moving us, moving us in ways we could not otherwise be moved to do things we would not ever do and all by your grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.